Good day, my friends, and welcome to the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by the legendary Sergio Tacchini, brand worn by John McEnroe, Goran Ivanisevic, and Novak Djokovic. Listen, when I was a kid, we couldn't even buy Tacchini. It was aspirational, and now it's available worldwide, and I honestly cannot think of a greater gift for a tennis fan, player, or if you just get someone one of the iconic tracksuits or a t-shirt from the Paris Masters or the Monte Carlo Country Club, you just cannot do better. Check them out at SergioTacchini.com and use the code CRAIG30 in all caps to receive 30% off of your order. Arete Complete is the official towel of the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. The towel was originally created to deal with the slipping and sliding that happens in hot yoga. They are the official towel of Peloton, and you know how much you sweat in a Peloton class. The colors pop. There's an Aussie Open Blue, which you probably should get right now. A red clay, and they also have a Labor Cup Gray. There's also a tennis classic tennis green. The design is phenomenal. Sweat management is a real thing. I play with wristbands and headbands all the time. But the towel is key, and there really is nothing worse than a towel that isn't absorbent. This is the solution to all those sweat problems you have on the court. See them at A-R-E-T-E complete, A-R-E-T-E dot com, And use the code SHAP20 in all caps for 20% off of your order. Today's guest was born in Malmo, Sweden, and took a highly unlikely path into pro tennis, first going undefeated in two years at junior college, followed by winning the 1984 and 85 NCAA titles as a member of the Georgia Bulldogs. In 1986, he reached the final of the French Open and got to 10 in the world. Mikhail Pernforce is today's guest. You're in Florida where? Vero Beach. You're in Vero Beach? Yep. That's a nice spot. Yeah, no, we've been here now 15 years, and we really love it. Do you run your tennis out of any specific spot? Uh, I'm involved in a club called the Boulevard Tennis Club. The Boulevard Tennis Club. Yes. Is that uh, the hard true, all green clay there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How many courts? We have uh, 13, 10 lighted. Are you on the court there? Do you spend significant... I, I do I do a little bit, not not much. I, okay. uh, I, I usually travel, except for these times, but I usually travel quite a bit, so I don't really commit to too much when, I'm, uh, when I have been home, but I'm uh, starting to do a little bit more. That's the Lifetime Achievement Award for getting a 10 in the world. You don't got to spend too much time on the court. Yeah, that's not entirely true, but uh, I just feel like when I'm home and, and a lot of the travel is, is uh, yeah, during the weekends and stuff, so I just I feel like I, I need to be home some as well. Gentlemen, you hear former world number 10 had uh, one of the more interesting trajectories, I think, for a player, particularly from Sweden, kind of fit into a pocket where... There were some great, great Swedish players, and he came through college. We're going to talk about that. Uh, he got to the finals of the French Open. It was the first time I ever laid eyes on him in 1986, and that is Michael Pernforce. Good to be here. Thank you for coming on the show. As you know, we do a five-set format. The first set is the off-the-court report. You just said it. Uh, you were in Vero Beach. Generally speaking, you're doing a lot of travel, and that just backed right off. What has um, things been like for you? Well, it's uh, the last year has been very slow. Uh, pretty much all the events that I've been scheduled to do uh, have not happened. 
Uh, I've done a couple of fantasy camps out at John Newcomb's ranch, which have been great. Uh, but then most of the stuff I've been doing is uh, just locally doing some lessons here. Can you give me a feel for what the what the what the vibe and the groove has been like in in Vero? I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty. Been, is it pretty wide open, or is it? It's been pretty open, uh, at least for the last seven or eight months. You know, we've been able to play tennis, and we, you know, golf courses are open. Uh, you know, pretty much everybody wears masks. Uh, but it, it's still, it's a community that's at least for us is kind of spread out. So uh, you don't really notice too much, and I think that the you know the healthcare system is is, is holding up pretty well. So it's it's I'm not going to say it's normal because it's not, but it, but it's not been too different for us as a family. Now, do you have any feel for vaccines and what's gonna like what's kicking out down there? Uh, not really. I think our family is uh, young enough to where we're not in a situation yet where we're going to be called on to to get it. So I, I think we're kind of just uh, you know behaving the way we should be behaving and social distancing and then uh, we'll see when when something happens for us now do you have people in sweden uh i have uh my parents have passed away my wife is also swedish her mom is alive her sister and i have two siblings in sweden as well and do you when's the last time you were in sweden uh wow it was uh was it christmas no it wasn't christmas uh, summer of 19 so that's a long stretch yeah yeah it is so hopefully this thing shakes out and you'll uh, you'll be able to get back there to see your your family at some juncture. Yeah, it'll be great to go. We normally go to Sweden in the summertime and uh, every now and, and uh, in the wintertime. It, uh, so it's always fun to go back and see family and friends in the summer. So I'm really hoping that we get an opportunity this, uh, this summer coming here. Let's move into the second set. This is what's called the On the Court Report. You have an, an interesting new app that basically, from what from my purview drives to the coaching aspect of tennis um it's called excel tennis yeah excel tennis yeah and it's uh, it's a um it's an app that's pretty much a communication platform between the player and the coach uh where you're able to to go in and uh yeah pretty much anything that has to do with your tennis you uh you can do journaling in there you schedule you schedule tournaments practices uh, you can get more than one coach involved. So if you're in a situation where you have a strength coach or you have nutritional people helping you, you can collect it all in one platform. And I'm quite excited because it's, uh, it's, it seems like we have a product that can do really well. What distinguishes it from other coaching technologies that we, we, we've been seeing over the last you know, couple of years? Well, I mean, I think that we go a little bit more into detail in the journaling. We, uh, we're so I think we're ahead of the game when it comes to downloading your own individual videos that you can collect. We there, there's a lot of uh, outside videos information. Uh, you have a lot of uh, you know off off court workouts that, that are available on the app. Uh, we do. Uh, I have my own blog on there actually. So we're going to be uh, interviewing a bunch of tennis people. I've already done one with uh, Matt Vlander. I've got one with uh, Jochen Eastrom and got a long list of people that we're going to be interviewing and putting on uh, on the app. Very nice. Australian Open began. Do you have any interesting, you know, sort of observations or thoughts uh, as these two weeks uh, shake out? Uh, to me, uh, as a player, if I would have had to, to be in the same situation as the players today, I, I just don't see myself enjoying going to a Grand Slam playing under these circumstances. 
to me, the, the first thing that I react to is the fact that there are no people in the stands. I guess there will be a, a little bit more here, but having seen the last couple of Grand Slams with pretty much no, nobody in the stands, to me, it's just very, very difficult for me to see how I would be able to go out and perform. Is it more of a rhythm thing that you just get used to it, or do you actually like you play better when you got people when you have eyeballs on you? Oh, I I, I certainly played better with people watching, no doubt about it. Uh, but I, I think overall, you know, with the quarantines and I mean, you got people in their rooms hitting balls up against mattresses, and I mean, just to me, that that's not the way a, a Grand Slam tournament should be, you know, played and or be prepared for, you know. No doubt. Now. Um, are there any players that you love to watch? I, I know that you don't keep your eye on pro tennis as significantly as others. Yeah, I, uh, I always get criticized when I when I say that I'm not a big fan of watching tennis. But I, I, I've <laughs> always been like that when I was younger, and and you know Borg would be in the finals of Wimbledon, I'd be out playing him on the wall. So, uh, but but that aside, to to me. When I look at the players that play today, I, I just I can't get away from Roger Federer. I just I mean I just love to watch him play. I, I've gotten to know him a little bit uh, throughout the years, and I just think that he is so great for the game of tennis. And he's the most yeah the most natural tennis player I've ever seen. Uh, I didn't get to see a lot of Rod Laver playing in the the old generation, but to me Federer is such an ultimate tennis player and on, on all levels. That's interesting because your strokes and the way you play is absolutely has nothing to do with his style. You are a much more loopy ground yeah, stroker. Yeah, yeah, I think that I, I kind of grew up, uh, I grew up with a one-handed backhand. Uh, oh, really? Which was my best uh, stroke, actually, until I was about 15. And then I, I don't know, I, I, I wasn't quick enough to get that racket around with one arm, so I had to go to a two-hander. But, uh, you know, I, I think that I, I, I grew up with... Uh, with teachers that uh, and coaches that kind of let me do my own thing, there, you know, I, I certainly got to learn the game for, with the basics, with the continental grip. So, you know, they made sure that I knew everything I needed to know. But then, you know, I think my my forehand, too, especially my forehand, is it's all coming out of my own body, so to speak. And, and and I think that's why I was able to to do as well as I did. And having the kind of strange career that I did was that I had the freedom to do all the stuff that I wanted to do from from an early age. We're going to talk about your career significantly. Last question here. Do you have any significant involvement or contact with the ATP as a, as alumni? Uh, not really. No, not really. Not, probably not as much as I probably should have, but uh, no, I don't. Do you have any um, opinions or observations about the new Gaudenzi uh, Italian uh, group that's kind of running the show at the ATP. I, I don't. I don't really. I don't, I don't know enough to really have an opinion about it. Uh, I mean, I, I know that we had our issues back in the day as well, and it's just a difficult situation. I think where where uh, the, the the players need to be in a situation where they're they're coming from strength. That it's not only the tournaments that that are the decision makers. But again, I, I don't really know enough to to have a an opinion about it. Did you feel that back in back in the late 80s, early 90s, that the tournaments were in a – it was all too kind of muddled together. The tournaments are in too – you know, they're in a position of power. Yeah, I know that for sure. That's, that's what I feel is, is – that's is skewed a little bit there, but, but hopefully it's going to be a situation where that can be more equalized. Let's move into the third set. This is the portion of our show – where we talk about your career. Michael, where does your tennis begin? I know you're from Malmo. 
I, uh, I started playing tennis uh, pretty much in the, in the area around Malmo. Uh, my dad was a, you know, uh, I'm not going to call him mediocre, but he, he, he was a decent tennis player uh, that, that played competitive tennis. And that kind of meant that you as a kid, you were hanging around the tennis courts, uh, hitting balls in the, you know, in the parking lot up, up against the wall. And, and I, I grew up in Sweden in the 60s and 70s where pretty much you know, all sports were pretty much readily available to you uh, at no great expense. So I pretty much played every sport there was when there was a ball involved that was moving um, up until about 15. And that's when I, uh, you know, played a little bit more tennis than anything else. Was Borg uh, impactful to your career? Was his superstardom interesting? Uh, of, of course. I mean, I again, I mean, I, I started playing tennis before I knew who Bjorn Borg was. Uh, meaning I started hitting tennis balls when I was like three years old and 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 just loved it. Uh, it, it was always part of my yeah life, so to speak, uh, on a daily basis. Uh, then when Borg came around, of course, there was something that you looked upon as, you know, how great that somebody like that can be that great and be a Swedish tennis player. How did you get very good? And when were you – what kind of junior were you? I, I was uh, – I was really good when I was seven, eight, nine, and, and, you know, the early years there because I had, you know, the feel for the ball. And it was a, at those years where it didn't really matter if you were strong or not. It was a question of, you know, getting the ball to the other side of the net. So I would say I, 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 I was probably looked upon as a, as a good talent until uh, probably 11, 12, when, when other kids would outgrow me and, and start hitting the ball harder and, uh, I, I was not a, I don't think I was ever, I, I should say, I, I know I was never ranked top 10 in Sweden uh, at any age as a junior. Um, I, w I was a pretty good player in my, in my area, in the south of Sweden, uh, when I was like 16, 17, 18. But uh, if you look at what I did tennis-wise, uh, I, I, I would say I averaged about one hour a week when I was 17. Because they just, I went to school and there, there wasn't a tremendous amount of time. And again, I wasn't somebody that somebody looked at me saying, well, that guy is somebody we're going to spend you know, time and money on. So, Hang on a second. You're 17 years old and you were playing one hour of tennis a week. Uh, well, I, I practiced one hour a week. And That's then, it. I mean, I, I'd be playing tournaments in the summer and then some tournaments in the wintertime. But uh, practice-wise, we're looking at about an hour a week. Yeah. So you weren't one of these kids getting pulled out of school and practicing six hours a day. None of that. No, no, I think my parents would have laughed at me if I suggested that that's what I should be doing. So then what happened next? Well, I, kind of a long story, but I had a good friend of mine, Tobias Svantesson, that uh, also played on the tour in the 80s and 90s, who uh, went over to do an exchange year in high school in uh, Virginia. And uh, he was, uh, did well enough in high school tennis, I guess, to get offered a scholarship to Old Dominion. And uh, he had to go back to Sweden and finish his last year uh, of school in Sweden to, to qualify to play college tennis. But I had finished. So he said, well, why don't you guys take, take Michael instead? And uh, the coach up there at Old Dominion asked for my results. And Tobias said, well, he's got none. So there was no way that was going to happen <laughs> at Old Dominion. But uh, the Old Dominion coach had a contact at a Seminole Community College in Florida and he said, well, why don't, uh, why don't you ask your friend to check with this school because I think they might be looking for some players. And uh, I, I was lucky enough to be accepted to go down to Seminole Community College. Uh, no scholarship whatsoever, but I think my parents wanted to get rid of me, so they paid for it. And uh, 
I guess the rest is history because I, I went from playing one hour a week to three hours a day, and that just uh, made a huge difference for my game. What was it like to come to the United States? Um, it sounds to me like you, it would be fair to say you weren't like uh, playing international junior tournaments. You didn't play the Orange Bowl. You, had you, or had you been here? And no, you no, kind no. Of... I mean, I, I played in – I mean, I think I had been out of Sweden once or twice and played in some junior events, but nothing that was – I wasn't sent by the Federation as a top junior to play. I just went and played some – I can't remember if I knew that I could be a decent tennis player. I, I knew that I had talent, but I just had no idea what, what, it would, what would happen with my tennis if, if I came over and played. But I think at that time I wasn't – I wasn't certainly going to start working, and, and I, I, I wasn't too interested in, in uh, academics in the sense of that I would go to school in Sweden and, and not play tennis at all. So it, it was a great opportunity for me to come over, and I really had no expectations. And, and I, I'm pretty sure that my coach down at Seminole had no expectations because he told me after my two years there uh, where I went undefeated, he said, well, I just want you to, to know that the first letter I sent to your parents I didn't say it right out, but I didn't really want you to come over because I had enough players. But I guess your parents wanted you to come over. So I, I, I got very lucky in uh, in coming over that way. Hold on a second. You were undefeated. Yeah, I, I lost no, uh, no junior college matches in two years. And then uh, how – and then I guess uh, the proof's in the pudding, right? You went to Georgia and won the NCAAs two years in a row. What was – what was um what was the course uh, how did that happen well uh we, we had a really good team at, at Seminole. uh we won the the nationals twice uh we had i think we were i think top 5 went on to play division 1 uh tennis uh so i think people i mean people realized very quickly that you know we had some good players so we all, we were like three or four guys that would go on recruiting trips uh, i went to three or four schools and then I beat a former uh, player, a uh, former Georgia player at a money event down in Florida, and he suggested to Coach McGill to, uh, to take a look at me, and, and I, I got to go on a recruiting trip to Georgia, and when they offered me a scholarship at the time, they were third in the nation, so it was pretty much a no-brainer for me to, to go to Georgia, and that's uh, probably, the, the best, probably the best choice I ever made in, in my tennis career was to go to Georgia. Who'd you beat? Who, who, who made that a connection? Excuse me? Who was the player that you beat that uh, made the Paul connection? Growth. Paul Growth. Paul Growth? Yeah, yeah. You should, you should be sending him Christmas cards every year, yeah, my yeah, man. No, no, no. He's, uh, <laughs> I've told him many times. Now, I guess my first question is, like, how good did you get at Seminole? How much better did you get? What did you learn in the college, t- in the JUCO program that made you better? Uh, I mean, first of all, like I said, we had a great team. So, I mean, I would say that uh, our number five player could pretty much have played number one on any of the other junior college teams that we played. So every day was, was great practice. Uh, I guess I grew and grew a little bit, got a little bit stronger, got a little bit quicker. Uh, but I think that's the, the amount of good practice. We had a great coach in Larry Castle uh, that was really serious about us yeah, becoming better tennis players. Uh, and it was, it was just a, a great situation for us there. And, and, and again, uh, great practice made a big difference for me. Get to Georgia. Um, what was that experience like? Uh, I, I think that, well, Georgia, first of all, I think they were, they were ranked third in the nation uh, the year I got up there. And 
considering how big the sport is at Georgia. I mean, it, it for sure was, if not, if not the second, the third most popular sport on campus. Uh, football, of course, number one. And I mean, we weren't far away from, from basketball and, and being number two. So we always had huge crowds. Uh, and it, it was really, you know, with, with Coach McGill and Coach Diaz there, it was, it was just a perfect opportunity for me to be on a team with guys that we had no superstars on the team. We were just kind of guys trying to get better at tennis and, and, and hoping to do well. I mean, it, it was just, uh, it was, again, it was, it was so much fun. Michael, who were some of the name players that you battled against throughout your college career? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, we had uh, uh, Paul Anacone. I played uh, quite a bit. Uh, we had some great matches. Uh, we also had Lawson Duncan. I played Lawson Duncan uh, my first year. Uh, a couple Paul Anacone was at Tennessee. Uh, who other? What? Who else did you? Who else did you see throughout throughout those two years? Uh, well, we had the Ross Brothers SMU. I remember. Uh, yeah, what else did we have? Yeah, no, just names are not popping into my head. But well, it's there, interesting there, because there was a lot of guys that that uh, went out and played had decent uh, pro careers. Is Matt that Anger, right? Dan, Matt Anger, Dan Goldie. Uh, yeah, just a, a lot, a lot of guys that were good players. But but at that moment in time, it seems to me like the trajectory for pro players was the best juniors would turn pro and that the college system wasn't a typical feeder like it had been a few years earlier with McEnroe and so on and so forth. Would that be fair to say or not? Is that not really accurate? Oh, no, I, I, uh, I think that it's tr true what you're saying in singles. It's not true in doubles. I think that you, you're going to look at the doubles players coming out of college uh, have throughout, the, throughout all the times, I think, done really well. Uh, you probably didn't have the same. I mean, you have a McEnroe, Connors. They they come in, play one year, win the NCAA's, and then have tremendous professional careers. Uh, that certainly didn't happen. Uh, and I, I mean, it certainly didn't happen with me either, in the sense that I, I won it the first year and and went out and played a couple of events that summer. Uh, got a wild card into the U.S. Open because of winning the NCAA's, and I I didn't feel like I was ready to turn pro uh, after my junior year. So why? No, I just I. A combination of not thinking that I was good enough uh, and also I had such a great time at Georgia and I knew going back uh, it would be a tremendous year. We, we had lost in the, in the semis of the team event. We were four seniors. Uh, Coach McGill had never won the team, team event and, and I knew that he wasn't going to be too far away from retiring and I, I felt like it was a great, great opportunity for me to go back, uh, get a little bit better, be, get ready to play on the tour have a chance to win the NCAAs again, and, and then also have the opportunity to maybe win the team event. Did you guys win the team event? Yes, we did. So you won the single, you won, you won the individual, and you won the team? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's got to be a pretty good feeling. Yeah, no, I mean, it was, it, 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 yeah. Hair is standing up on my arms just thinking about it now. I mean, it was just, uh, it's a great time, great time. When did you think you could be a good player yeah, when you could be a pro player, you can make a living. Like, what happened that you know that you know, that that takes you from a, a college superstar to you know grinding on tour? I uh, I can't remember how many matches I played my my second year at Georgia, but I know I lost three. Uh, probably shouldn't have played 
played two of those that I lost, but uh, I, I don't know what my record was, 70-something, three. So, I, I mean, I left college with, with an unbelievable confidence. Uh, I just felt like the year I had had getting ready and, and played all the matches that I did as well as I did, I wasn't, I wasn't thinking that I was for sure going to make it as a pro, meaning that I would have a long career and, and you know, kind of make a living at it. Uh, but I, but I certainly know I, I certainly knew that I had an opportunity to to do it, and I felt like my personality and the the way I was as a player, my attitude, uh, I, I I thought I could do well. But I mean, also too, I think you know nothing is more important than match tough. When you feel like you're the baddest guy on the where you know you won 70 matches there's nothing yeah. like that yeah but that, that's the thing is i mean i i went in and i i mean i had won the ncaa's before the year before and i had a pretty long winning streak going into the ncaa's and coming back and i started out well and i i, I pretty much uh my, my first year at georgia if we wouldn't have played at home i don't think i would have won the ncaa's uh the second year I think we could have played it anywhere and I would have won it. That's the kind of feeling I went into my second year saying, you know, I, I'm the best player in, in college tennis and, and I'm just going to, I'm just going to show that all, all, all year. And I, I think that kind of brought me on to the tour with this, uh, the feeling of that. I, I, I'm good enough to beat some of these guys. Now, like I said, at the top, I never saw, I never heard of you laid eyes on you back then. You know, it wasn't like it is now. There's, you know, I was 15 years old in high school, and, and, and you didn't watch first round, second. You didn't watch tennis, really, until the back ends of these tournaments. You know what? Let's start here. How would you describe your pro career? Uh, I, I, I got my ranking up, and back then it was a little bit e or a lot easier than it is today. Uh, I got my ranking up fairly quickly, so it wasn't like I had to, to run and play satellite events and, and, and the smaller tournaments. Uh, I, I think I got my ranking up to uh, maybe 165 the first half a year there in 85. So I, w I was able to, to get into at least qualifying at, at the bigger events. And, and, and fairly quickly, I, got to, I qualified and got to the semis of Memphis. Uh, I qualified and got to the quarters of La Quinta, I think it was. So... So I got my ranking up very quickly, which now, I think made a huge difference for me. And now, did any of these Swedish guys, like, when did you start meeting the Swedish players? Like, did you know Mats? Did you know uh, Joaquin Nystrom? I, 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 met, I met most of them in the juniors. Uh, oh, you did? I, I, I was, uh, uh, I played pretty good doubles. So I, I would hang around in doubles in some of the events where they would all get to the semis and finals of the singles. So I, 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 I knew the guys, meaning I had met them, but it wasn't like we were great friends or anything. But when, when you, back then, and, and I think that's a huge reason why Swedes did well and a huge reason why I immediately felt comfortable on the tour was that there were so many Swedes that had been out on tour for four or five years and they, I mean, they welcomed you like a brother. You know, they, they would, you know, they, it wasn't like you had to like fight your way into this group. It's just like they, they welcomed you in and they said, you know, we're traveling together, we practice together, we have beers together, you know, we're just a... We're a group of guys having a good time out playing tennis. So it was so easy to, to kind of get into that group and, and be part of that group immediately. Who are your friends? Uh, most of them. 
Really? <clears throat> I mean, I, I think the guys, if you look at the big names, the ones that I stay in touch with the most is uh, Mats and Joachim Nyström, uh, Anders Jared, uh, and then there's a bunch of the other guys. T Tobias Svantesson, who, who I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, we go way back. We, we've known each other since we were six, seven years old, and he lives in Orlando, so we spend a lot of time together. But uh, it's just a, it's a, group, a great group of guys that, uh, that you know, you, you, you might not spend a lot of time or talk to them a lot, but you, you give them a call, and it's kind of like you meet up, and it's like you haven't been away from each other for 20 years. That's the best. And, you know, um, quite often, you know, it, we hear when I, when I talk to different players, men and women, that it takes them a sec. It takes them time to learn the rhythm of the tour. And it must have been helpful to have these cool cats, you know, have some familiarity out there. Or was it tough for you to get oh, used sure. to the rhythm? Of the uh, no, no doubt, no doubt about, no doubt about it. I remember uh, the first really big trip I took. I went to play uh, three events in Brazil and went there with another Swede uh, named Christer Algard, who is younger than me, but he had already been on tour for a couple of years. So it, again, it, it was just so natural. It wasn't like I went somewhere by myself and had to do everything by myself. There was experience around me and good friends around me from the start. And there's no doubt that that made a big difference uh, for when, all the students, I think. When did you break into the top 100? Uh, I, I don't know when I got into the top 100. Uh, the one thing that I think a, a lot of people don't know and, and certainly didn't know in Sweden was that I, I came to the French Open ranked 27th the first year I, uh, I played the French. So, and, and a lot of people kind of felt like, well, he just started playing. Where, where is he coming from? And there's no that's way. That's what I'm saying, man. You were already, yeah, I'm, that's what I'm saying. You were already like a, you were a, a top 30 guy when you got to the French Open that year in 86. But yeah, yeah. how did you sort of go so far under the radar in a sense? Uh, well, I didn't win an event. Right. So, I mean, you get get enough quarters and semis there during that time, you, you could get your ranking up pretty quickly. And like I said, I, I it's not like I I didn't get on the front pages because I didn't win anything, but but I got in and got to the quarters and semis of uh, three or four events there in the spring. And, uh, yeah, that's what it was. 1986 French Open. Um, what, was, what was that like? Uh... Well, I mean, I had I had played the U.S. Open uh, twice, so I had, I had been at Grand Slams, uh, so I kind of knew what to expect. Uh, seeing the draw, uh, I, I kind of felt like I was I, I was going to be able to maybe win one and then lose to Edberg in the second. Uh, but but I had I had played and beaten Edberg in Atlanta, so it wasn't like it was impossible to beat him. Uh, but I think that. Uh, uh, beating Edberg, and I, I can't remember exactly how it went, but I, I know that there was a point in that match where where he was definitely definitely in the lead, so to speak, and, and it looked like he was going to win, but we had a rain delay. Uh, and I think that if it wasn't for that rain delay, I probably wouldn't have won that match, but I got lucky there. And then uh, from there on, it, it kind of just it got to the point where I just felt like I can't miss, you know, you, you guys do whatever you want. I, I just can't miss. And I, I had a good, I had a good draw because I played a lot of guys that were aggressive players. The only player that I really played that was a, if we can call him a, or that he was a, you know, a genuine clay court player was Martin Heitha in the round right. of 16. 
the, the rest of the guys were guys that were, you know, kind of wanting to come in. Becker, Lacan. And that's what, that's what I loved to play against. It was just, and, and, and the French back then, I mean, when it was dry, it was like playing on a hard court with dust on it. So it just, it fit me perfect. Now, um, were you, do you, do you travel with a big entourage? Were you have 15 guys with you? What was it like when you were there? Uh, I had one guy, uh, Ola Malquist, uh, oh, yeah. who played at Georgia and now is uh, head honcho, or not head honcho, maybe, but uh, high up in the, in the USGA. Wonderful for, guy. For he our listeners, um, this, this cat Malmquist is, uh, he is, uh, he is large and in charge in the uh, elite player program at the USTA. And yeah, he's uh, you see him around and no one seems to know, really know who he is. If you, unless you know, so uh, Uh, if you you talk about being under the radar, that's one guy that is under the radar. He is an under the radar elite, elite coach. So he was with you. Yeah, no, he, he, uh, like I said, I I got to know him at Georgia. He, um, uh, my first year at Georgia, he had already finished his uh, tennis eligibility, but he stayed around for a year uh, to finish school. So I, I roomed with him, got to know him, and uh, and then uh, coming out on tour. And I think we got – I can't remember exactly when we got going, but it was uh, in the beginning of 86, uh, you know, I brought him on. But that, that was the only guy that, that I had with me at the time. My, par- my parents and my siblings came down for the finals. And once you got and to I, the – I couldn't say that because Coach McGill and my agent came over for the quarters, I think it was. Right. Well, my agent might have been there. Yeah. Now, was, you got to tell me – It was not a big group. Let's put it that way. The first time I ever saw you, I saw something that I never saw. I, I don't know if I've seen it ever since or ever. I know it wasn't ever saw it before. But you wore your shirt with the button up to the top and the collar yeah, flipped. Yeah. And the collar well, flipped. The, 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 the funny thing is that I, that I did. I signed a contract with Nike. Uh, I was with Adidas on their ATP program. And then before the quarterfinals, I signed a deal with Nike. Um, and everybody always talked about that. You know, I, I was doing it like a fashion statement. Uh, you know, I had the big baggy shorts and the and the collar up with the with the button up and the you know. For uh, our listeners, if you if you haven't sorry, for our listeners, if you didn't see it, you could go on YouTube and see it. But you know, he had a funky style. He he wore the you know the three button shirt with the top button the top button buttoned. And the collar flip. So, sorry, well, conti- tell, sorry continue. You, everybody thought it was a fashion statement, but I'm going to tell you what happened. So, first of all, the shorts, big baggy shorts, were the only ones that fit me. Because this was kind of a rush job here. I mean, we had to, like, they had to run to the Nike storage and get me some stuff for the quarterfinals. Uh, and then the, the shirts, when they got sweaty, they would kind of drop down. And I had a necklace with two tennis balls in it. And... When that shirt would go down, the tennis balls would jump and hit me in the teeth. <laughs> so, so I had to button the shirt up, and then with the collar down, with the, the button shirt, it looked, it looked silly. So I said, well, the only way I can do this is if I turn the collar up, it looks a little bit better. So that's how that came about. So it's a very little fashion statement, just that I didn't want my teeth knocked out. Yeah, because when I looked at video getting ready after 86, you didn't have the button buttoned. Yeah, no, it was. Uh, <laughs> I mean, listen, I mean, that's unbelievable. You signed a Nike deal right in the middle of the tournament. Yeah, yeah. 
But I, so I, I got to tell you another funny story if we have time for it here. But so Coach McGill comes over uh, before the quarterfinals and, and Nike had told me before the match, they said, well, you know, we'd like for you to be in the clothes, but, you know, since these are new shoes, we're not going to force you to wear the shoes so you can wear your Adidas shoes if you want to because you're used to those. And I was like, there's no way I'm going to wear that. I, I want to wear my new bright-looking Nike shoes for sure. So I go out against Becker, and I think he wins the first set, 6-1. And Ola told me that Coach McGill was fuming in the stands because the only reason he could see for me losing the first set must be the new shoes. Yeah, like, why'd you change your shoes? And then I turned it around and went fairly easily in four. And, and, and he, he just, he looked, he, he, afterwards he was like, well, I was just so happy that Michael got used to his shoes so he could win the match. Yeah. I mean, they say you never mess with your shoes, never mess with your rackets. I, you know, it's funny. I, I have this memory, like you hit a drop shot from the baseline, like the first point of the match or something early, you, know, you hit like a backhand slicey okay. drop shot to start the match. And then, um, I think the, first, the, the the beginning of the first set was kind of tight, and then you know it seemed like Lendl. It seemed like you were out of gas. From what yeah, I yeah, no, I I, I I had I had some I had some real opportunities in the in the first set. Uh, I mean, I think even if I would have won the first set, I I, I struggled to see how I was going to be able to to beat him uh, at all. But I think it was a combination of. I'm not going to say I was satisfied to get to the finals, but I think when, when that match, as it went along, I think I was just feeling like, you know what, what a great time this has been. I'm going to do my best, but I don't think this is going to be enough today. And he, he also, the game, and I, I never beat him in a, in a regular tour event. Uh, well, actually, I don't think I ever beat him anywhere, but uh, he, his style of play just wasn't, uh, I didn't like that at all. He could take advantage of my backhand and just overpower me. So I think that was, uh, you know, kind of a, a situation. And, he, and I think he knew as well. He, he knew he wasn't going to lose that day. What did you do that night? Uh, I remember most of it. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I do remember that I had a, 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 a tremendous time. It, was, it turned out to be just me and Ola going out, but it was just, it was, uh, that was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. Um, did, did, did it ever get better for you other than those two weeks? Did you ever have a better moment in your tennis career? Uh, I, I always get asked that question with everybody expecting the answer that the French Open was for sure. Uh, and it's very, it's very difficult to, to argue against that, but I didn't win. And, and uh, that, that, is, that makes a difference. It certainly made my career, and it certainly made me a second career to have that in, in my, uh, you know, in, in the baggage to that I've been in the finals of a, a Grand Slam. But to me, uh, winning the team event at Georgia was, was huge. Uh, but also winning the Canadian Open in 93, uh, after long, uh, I mean, I had long-term injuries. I had a couple of surgeries. Uh, and I don't, I don't think anybody thought I would come back and play at that level. I, I probably didn't think so myself, but if, if it comes down to it and I just have to pick one thing, it would be winning Montreal in 93. I have two questions. Uh, first, who'd you beat in Montreal? Uh, what was your, what was your draw? Who'd you, who'd you, who'd you, who'd you, who'd you blow through? Uh, I, I beat, 
Uh, big names, I'd be, I'd be Courier, Volkov, Korda, and then Todd Martin in the finals. I mean, and that was a tough final. It was a long match. Yeah, yeah. And the thing is that it also is, I mean, I had played, that was probably my best year. I played a lot of matches, won a lot of matches, but I played mainly on the on the challenger tour. So I played like six or seven challengers and, and got my ranking. I mean, I think I was in the thousands coming into the year ranking wise and uh through these uh through the challengers there i i think i got my ranking up to like 85 so i was the last player into the main draw in montreal <laughs> what happened how did your body break down what were the injuries yeah, I, and, and I, it happened I, shortly I, after you kind of got to 10 it seems to me uh, I had uh, I had some knee knee stuff in '88, but that it wasn't too major. But the, the biggest problems I had was my Achilles tendons. Uh, I, I played on the Achilles. I got to the quarters in uh, Australia in '90 with a famous McEnroe match, and and it, it turned out that I played on half an Achilles uh, during that. Did uh, you tear course. your Achilles, or they were? No, um... it, 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 was just, it was half off. I actually went in for an operation. I think it was uh, April, April or May of 90. And, and the doctor back then said, it's got to be the bursa because if there's something wrong with the Achilles, you wouldn't be able to run. So they just went in to take the bursa out. They said, are you going to be out for three weeks? And I came out of the operation being out for, yeah, 11 months, I think it was the first time uh, because the Achilles was half off. So. How'd you keep a good attitude? Uh, I was a really bad junior. I lost pretty much every match for like six years. I, I I knew how to take a loss. And that's always been the same thing in my career. Every, every loss, it takes me about 10 minutes. And then we go have some beers and, and we come back the next week and, and try again. Regarding the Achilles blowing out, that's got to be just so excruciating. Uh, yeah, yes and no. I mean, I knew it could be a lot worse. Uh, I, I had a father that uh, had survived cancer twice before my Achilles was half off. So to me, uh, I wasn't going to complain too much about having an, a, an Achilles issue that was going to take me out for a while. So again, I, uh, I love playing tennis, but I also have a good time with a lot of other stuff as well. So it, it was just a question of you know, try to get back in there and, and go out. Hopefully I can get back into it and play again. And that, that's when I had the opportunity to come back in 93 and have a great year. And you got comeback of the year player. Yeah. That's a great effort. Yeah. I was, it was, a, it was probably overall the best year I had was uh, 93. Let's move into the fourth set. This is the 10 ball scramble. I just say it and you say what comes into your mind. Are you ready? Okay. Your favorite racket. Wimbledon. The, the, the actual Wimbledon racket? The, no, there, there was a brand called Wimbledon yeah. back in the day, and that's what I played with uh, coming out on tour. That's what I played with. Uh, uh, well, yeah, I, I played with it uh, through the French uh, and that year, and then uh, Snoward made a similar racket. So I, it's uh, the Wimbledon was a great racket for me. Your current racket? Uh, I'm playing with head, um, messing around a little bit, trying to find something, but uh, right now I'm playing with the Extreme S, which is a... Uh, very forgiving racket for an old, uh, yeah, slightly overweight man. Our friend Andrew Sikulski, who got to practice with you in uh, John Newcomb's, uh, the John Newcomb program, said that you are an unbelievable player still. 
Uh, yeah, I guess for my age, I'm okay. If, if people hit the ball to me. Grip size. Uh, four and five eighths. Four and five eighths. Always been. Uh, oh, I used to steal my dad's rackets all the time. And I, I four and five eighths. I did leather grip, four and five eighths with a, you know, a turn or a grip over it. But come on, really? And I, 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 and I, I have small hands, but it's just, uh, I, I got used to it at an early age and just. Uh, wow. Yeah. How do you string your racket? If you're talking about tension wise, now I am at, I'm not supposed to do this, but I, I, I keep going back to polyester, but I string polyester at 32 pounds. 32, 32 pounds or kilos? 32 pounds. That loose. Yep. Wow, got no, Lucy. Got no racket speed anymore. Got need some. I need some help. And when you were when you were playing uh, your best tennis, what, what how'd you how'd you string it? Those uh, Wimbled, those Wimbledons. Uh, a, a natural gut, which we all did. Natural gut, but pretty much as tight as I could. I, I I just couldn't play with loose gut strings back in the day. I had I can't remember what I strung those Wimbledons at, but maybe it's like yeah. The gut had so much action in the string, you could picture it. Yeah, yeah. It was a different world back then. It was a different world back then. Yeah, no, it's just, I mean, that's what you played with. And, and, and again, I mean, you, yeah, that's the only thing you could play with back then. And, and back then with the good, good racket speed and good footwork and being able to get in the right position, then, then it works. Did you, where do you keep your trophies? I don't know if you can see one. I have, I have the Davis Cup. I see it. Davis Cup runner-up. I see it. It's in the shelf over there. But the, the rest, I don't really, I don't, uh, they're, they're not up. They're somewhere. I, I, I don't know. I just, I love my trophies, but it's just, I, I don't, uh, I haven't put them up anywhere. Did you keep your credentials? Uh, I didn't uh, from the beginning, uh, but I started later in my career. And uh, I, I certainly have throughout my uh, Legends career, I've saved everything. Still not sure what I'm going to do with it, but I have them. All stuck in a box somewhere. All stuck in a drawer. Yeah, yeah. Your greatest win. My greatest win. You got a lot of good wins. I mean, a lot of unbelievable wins. Is there one that sticks out? Yeah, it's uh, it's greatest win. I don't know. Okay. Uh, greatest win that I. Probably that, that got me to something else was when I beat Mayotte uh, at Wimbledon being down two sets to love. That's a good win. Uh, and then I got to play Connors in that famous match uh, in, the, in the next round. But uh, that, that, was, that was a lot of fun to win, to win that match against Mayotte. Because the thing was that I was, I was down two sets to love. And uh, I had one of the Swedish guys in the stands with a couple of girls that we had met during the week. And as I was walking around being down two sets to love, we were pretty much already talking about what we were going to do that night after I lost. <laughs> but for some reason, I, I managed to turn it around. So we had to wait another couple of days to go out. I mean, you can't make that up. Uh, is there a worse loss? Is there one that still keeps you up at night? Well, there, there's, there, I, I have some losses that if I could have them back now, uh, it would have made a huge difference for me. I, I, up two sets to love against Cash in Davis Cup uh, in Melbourne. Uh, if I would have won that match, uh, there's no way that Edberg would have lost the deciding match. We would have won Davis Cup that year. What year was that? Sorry, hey, that was '86. It was. Uh, and I, uh, but I, I played as good as I could play. Cash just beat me, so I, I can't be too uh, 
disappointed in that. And then, I mean, you always have the Connors match at Wimbledon uh, being up 6-1, 6-1, One break, one break only. Uh, <laughs> of course, that would have mean uh, that would have been great to win that because you never know. I mean, I, I don't know what would have happened if I would have won that match. But, but I always tell myself that uh, if I would have beaten Connors 1-1-1, one, one, and one, I'm not sure if he would have kept playing. But I certainly know that I would not have been invited to play on his Nuveen tour over here, which <laughs> gave me my second career. So uh, I, I always say that there's something good come out of uh, losing to Connors in that match. He got you paid uh, later on. If you had if you had beaten him, you wouldn't you wouldn't get that job. That's a hundred. Yeah, no, I don't think so. They say that if you if you could beat Jimmy, you couldn't. They wouldn't let you on the tour. Yeah, no, that was uh, well. It was it wasn't like you. You didn't go out and lose on purpose because, I mean, first of all, Jimmy was really, really good for a long time. Really good. So, so it wasn't that somebody went out and lost him because they could beat them handily. But, you know, back then it was also a question of, I mean, if I was playing, if I was playing Borg in the semifinals and McEnroe was already in the finals, I mean, I was bright enough to understand that it probably looked good if there was a McEnroe-Borg finals instead of a McEnroe-Pernforce finals in a Legends event. So, you know, you kind of used your own brain when you when you got to that uh, stage. In if you want the gig. <laughs> if, yeah. you, if you want to go the next I, I, did, I, I did win. I did win a couple of events. I won the Masters once, too. So it wasn't like we uh, – it wasn't like it was in the contract to uh, – To tank. To lose to those guys. Uh, your favorite tournament? I always loved going back to Sweden, playing Bostad and Stockholm. Uh, but but if I if I if I only got to go back to one event and play it again, uh, it has to be Wimbledon. Uh, Wimbledon is just is such a special place, and I, I've been able to go back and play in the Legends event several times, and it, it's it's something about walking on the grounds at Wimbledon that that nothing no other tournament has. Michael Perforce loves Wimbledon the most. Your favorite city. Mm. Uh, I, I really enjoy Stockholm. Uh, is, is Stockholm is, is a wonderful place. Uh, my wife is from, is from Stockholm, so we've had an opportunity to spend a lot of time there. It, it's just a, it's a beautiful city, a lot of fun people, uh, a great place to have fun in. Uh, if I had to pick something out, outside, of, uh, outside of Sweden, I, I always have a good time in London. Uh, I think London is a great city, a, a lot of fun things to do there. Your favorite court could be any court in the world. Was there a court you played your best tennis on? Uh, yeah, again, I mean, to to I've I've had and I I try to I tell people I I can look at my career and and talk about winning events and and whatever you did result result wise, but I I got to play on all the Grand Slam center courts. Uh, I got to win on three of them. I never won a match on center court at the U.S. Open. But I played some good matches there, and, and some that are, or at least one that's in the record book against Mats. Uh, I think we ended up at like finishing up at two twenty-six in the morning. Um, but but to to say that you you played on on all the Grand Slam center courts, that that's really special to me uh, for many reasons. But again, if I had to pick one of them, it, again it's Wimbledon. You play, you get to play a center court at Wimbledon, a beautiful summer night. I mean, it's just there. There's nothing like it. I mean, you came out of junior college and you played every major. You got to 10 in the world. I mean, it's just unbelievable. No, no, man. It is, it is, I mean, it is. And I, and I think that's part of why I did so well that I just never had any expectations. Nobody ever put expectations on me. 
I never had any pressure from parents or, or anybody. I went out to play tennis because it was a good time. Uh, I knew how to handle losses. I knew how to have a good time. Uh, it, it, it was just such an adventure. And it still is an adventure for me to go out and play tennis because I, I just have such a good time hitting the tennis ball that it's a great time. To love tennis. That's it. Yeah. I try to tell people that if, if you take a tennis court and you fill it with balls, so you, you can't see the court, you can only see tennis balls. That's as many shots as you have. And then you add all your strokes to that, that becomes a lot of shots. And I still haven't hit all those shots, so I got to keep going. Let's move into the fifth and final set. This is we call the king of the court. If you can make a change in the sport with just one swing of the racket, could be anything. Could be rule. Could be. It could just could be anything you want. What would it be? Uh, I would try to get the surface as, as as different as they were back in the day. I think they are too similar uh, with the bounce and speed. Uh, I mean, it's lovely to play on the grass at Wimbledon now, but it, it, it was it was a different game back in our day. And, you know, maybe they shouldn't be as bad as they were, but but I I, I think that the surfaces are, are becoming too similar. I think they need to be a little bit more different. The tennis looks the same because the ball is bouncing. The the courts have slowed so much. Yeah, for sure. Hey, man, I got to tell you, I had a feeling that you had a very interesting story, and I could, I really couldn't find it anywhere. Um, I'm really, really happy that we finally got a chance to talk. Hey, I had a great time. Thank you. Very good. Uh, what's next for you coming down the road? No, I'm just uh, excited about this app. Uh, we're just uh, launching it here, and, and I, I think that it's going to be a lot of fun. I, I'm out. We actually do it a little bit different. We have the generic app, but we also approach academies and, uh, and federations so that they can get their own platform, their own app, uh, so where they don't have to go on the public app. Bespoke, uh, so that, bespoke, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it, we're, uh, we're, uh, we're looking forward to that. I'm also involved in a, uh, a watch company called Enixon, where I designed some tennis watches for them, and uh, that's, that's quite a fun project. But... Uh, most of all, I just hope that things loosen up a little bit so I can get uh, get back to doing some of my events. Because like I said earlier, I just, I love playing tennis. I love to perform and entertain people. And I just uh, hope I get an opportunity to do that again before I have to retire because I can't run anymore. Well, we'll be back before then. This, this, this whole thing's got to come back around. Hey, man, yeah. like I said, can't thank you enough. Michael Pernfors, got to be the greatest player to ever play at Seminole Junior College, I'm, I've got to say. <laughs> Two-time NCAA champion, former world number 10. You are released. Thank you, sir. Huge thank you to Mikhail Pernfors, and thank you to Sergio Tacchini. See them at SergioTacchini.com and use my code, CRAIG30, in all caps at checkout to receive 30% off of your order. Once again, a red take complete is the official towel of the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. They are A-R-E-T-E-C-O-M-P-L-E-T-E.com. The towels are a tremendous gift for your tennis team. Use my code SHAP20 in all caps to receive a 20% discount. If you have not done it yet, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. And share the show with your friends. Max Loeb edited the show. Our music is by Brian Senti. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.